Hey, thanks for joining us at Connection Point Church. You know, we would love for you to stay connected and a simple way for you to do that is to subscribe so that each week you can get notified when new content goes live. We'd also love to keep in touch with you throughout the week and the best way to do this is through our Connection Point Facebook page. Now with all that being said, let's go to this week's message with our lead pastor, Zach Maddox. One of the things I get to do here at Connection Point is, uh, is marry people. Uh, in fact, on my Facebook memories, one popped up today. This year, there's this day last year, uh, we did a marriage, uh, and it was in the middle of the pandemic, so it was a smaller one at somebody's uh, family uh, house on Monticello. Uh, so it's, it's fun. Weddings are a fun celebration of two individuals coming together as one. But, but the question is, what is marriage for? Why do people get married? Uh, if I were to ask people in this congregation that question, I, I would imagine I'd probably get a lot of answers, you know? Some romantically would say, well, we fell in love. Great. You know? <laughs> Others might say they got married to start a family. Others, you know, they would say they just wanted someone to spend their life with in, in that way. And lots of answers. You know, because Shelly and I are married, uh, it's, it's helpful that I can be on her insurance as a, as a teacher. Um, so that's helpful that, you know, there's tax benefits to marriage. And <laughs> wait a minute. That's, that's not the only reason... <laughs> Sometimes you don't realize how something sounds until you say it, right? <laughs> I was in the first category. I fell in love. All right? Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> no, marriage is an awesome thing. Uh, Shelly and I celebrated 20 years last summer. It was awesome. And, and so what I want to do today as we continue our Better Together series is answer the question, uh, what is marriage for? Or maybe... Um, what is marriage designed for? What was, what was God's intent? Uh, because more than whatever reasons meet, we might come up with, we need to understand God's thoughts on marriage. We really do. So if you have your Bibles, hey, I hope you do. We're always going to look at God's Word. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 19 today. Uh, I want you to stand for reading of God's Word. Because I don't want to share my thoughts on marriage. I want God's thoughts on marriage. And so we're going to look at this scripture and then really just try to pull points out of it and what we see God laying out for us. So uh, Matthew chapter 19, we're going to start in verse 3 and wind up in verse 9. And the Pharisees came up to him, so approached Jesus, and, and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Jesus answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. These are the very words of God. You may be seated this morning. You're like, wow, where are we going today? <laughs> oh, man. Jesus has some good teachings, though. And, and so we left off last week in our Better Together series with a message on Jesus and women. And it was fun to celebrate that day, the Junias, the Phoebes, and the Priscillas in our midst, right? Amen. Praise God. This church is, is full of wonderful women who serve King Jesus. And in that message, we learned that Jesus wants everyone to be a disciple. Everyone. 
everyone in this room this morning, everyone in our overflow rooms, everyone that's tuning in online, he wants everyone to be a disciple. That was really the intention. And, and one of the principles we pulled out is, is as we follow Jesus, it's important we're learners before we're teachers. But I also want to push back on that a little bit to say, because then some people are like, well, I just don't know enough. I'll be honest with you, if you're one day ahead of another, you've already been a learner on some capacity, right? Let's always be willing to share what we know. You do know something. But we also learn that God's original design is oneness, not otherness, that God created men and women as mutuals. And so I had encouraged as a part of last week's message, if, if you maybe have some questions about that, go back to Genesis 1 and 2, reread those, and take a look at what God's original design was. And so actually, that's where I'd like to pick up today and, and do that, because as we look back at Genesis chapters 1 and 2, here's what we find about marriage, that marriage is about friendship. Marriage is about friendship. So reading from Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, here's what the writer of Genesis states, that then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone, and I will make a helper fit for him. <laughs> Every time I read that verse, this is what's bad. I, I helped with my older, I've got two older sisters, and uh, the oldest, she got married when she was 40, so a little bit later in life, and, and so I helped with that wedding, and like it was my responsibility in that wedding to read that verse. But here's the bad thing. <laughs> I, I quoted it, so here's what's bad. Don't quote things, just read it when it's in God's word, right? Then you don't misquote. I said it was good for man to be alone. <laughs> no, <laughs> it's not good. That's what God said. It was not good for man to be alone. <laughs> so he invented marriage. That's it. It was not good for man to be alone, and so God invented marriage. Marriage was not invented by the state. It was not thought up by man. It was given to us by God. That's where marriage came from. And what we find from this verse is that marriage is about friendship before it's about anything else. I love that about this. I love that about God's design for marriage, that the kind of friendship God had in mind, what we find indicated through an often misunderstood phrase, made a helper fit for him. Some people don't understand what that phrase is referring to. Uh, sometimes people have interpreted that to mean that Eve was somehow lesser than, than Adam. But that's, that's not what this word means. If you go back to the Hebrew, so you take a look at that verse and you look at helper. So the Old Testament's written in Hebrew, the New Testament's written in Greek. So you go back and look at the verse, it's the phrase ezer, ezer which is the same word used in other places in the Old Testament to describe God. Look at Hosea chapter 13. He destroys you, O Israel, for you are against me, against your helper, it says in Hosea. And this is a verse of judgment against Israel because they've been following after other gods, which pitted them against Yahweh, their helper, the Ezer. Now, obviously, God is not the lesser in that relationship with Israel, right? Even in the New Testament, we find the Holy Spirit is our helper, reading from John chapter 14. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Is the Holy Spirit our lesser? Lord, no. <laughs> the Holy Spirit empowers us to overcome the works of the flesh in our life. No, the Holy Spirit is not our lesser. He is necessary in the life of every believer. The Holy Spirit completes in us what we can become, that new creation. A good definition of the word ezer from Strong's Hebrew Dictionary is a person who contributes to the fulfillment of a need or the furtherance of an effort or purpose. 
So Eve would further the effort of Abraham. She would contribute to his fulfillment. So one of what I'm going to say is, is one of the goofiest moments, uh, moments in, in all of movie history. It's in these moments I sometimes remember. I've meant to ask Shelley about certain moments of my message before I come up here. I didn't. So I don't know if this is a goofy moment for you. So I'm going to have to apologize ahead of time. Shelly might really like this moment in movie history. It's from the movie Jerry Maguire, which I don't recommend <laughs> at all. And honestly, it's, it's the clip that sits in my head. Tom Cruise, he's talking to Renee Zellweger. And he's talking and rambling on. And he says to her, you complete me. That's a goofy moment for all guys in, in movie history. I don't know. But at the same time, that's actually the best definition of the word Ezra there is. Eve completes Adam. So Tom Cruise was actually saying something right there. <laughs> so you got a picture now. God has put Adam in this slumber. He creates Eve. He wakes up. He says, hello, Eve. You complete me. Eve interrupts and says, shut up, Adam. You had me at hello. Some of you get it, some of you don't, and that's okay. Oh, Lord have mercy. <laughs> Marriage is meant to be a friendship of co-equal others. It really is. And this understanding, let me say this, it actually helps to address a couple of lies in our culture today. The first is the lie that men and women must be understood as being the same in order to be understood as being equal. This is completely false. Completely false. Men and women are not the same, but that doesn't mean they're not equal. It doesn't mean that. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, it clearly states, so God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Every man and every woman is uniquely the representative and resemblance of God on planet Earth. I love that. They're equal in value and dignity, and yet they're not the same. Adam and Eve, they really do complete each other, that Eve completes Adam and Adam completes Eve, that she is strong where he is weak, that he is strong where she is weak, and together in love, appreciation, and unity, they are more than the sum of their individual parts. They really are. And it's this truth that confronts another lie in our culture, the lie that to need another human being is a sign of weakness. This is absolutely false. Needing another person is not a sign of weakness. It's actually a sign of self-awareness. Let me say that again. The need of others, the need of others, it's not weakness, it's a sign of self-awareness. You need to know, you need others. That's why God gave us the church. That's why God gave us marriage. That's why God gave us friendships. All of those things. According to the story in Genesis, human beings are deficient by design. The need Adam had for completeness was not a result of the fall. You ever considered that? God designed him that way. I think that's really interesting, that God made Adam with a built-in need for others that would cause him to seek out intimate community. And we've talked about that. We were built for intimacy and influence. That was God's design for us. Human beings are inherently social creatures, that we were quite literally made for one another. We are indeed better together than apart. That's what this whole series is about. It is not good. I'm going to remember it now. It is not good for men or women to be alone. And so God gives us marriage to resolve that tension in our lives. But I already said it. God doesn't just give us marriage. He gives us friendships. 
He gives us the church. And I was thinking about this, this point, and, and I know we've had to focus a lot this past year on social distancing and quarantines and, and everything, but I want to say it is absolutely vital that you maintain friendships in your life. Absolutely vital. We were made for community. Community with God and community with others. We were designed for it. So I want to ask you, who are your 2 a.m. friends? You're like, ooh. Like, those friends you can call at 2 a.m., they don't hang up or threaten to kill you. That's a 2 a.m. friend, right? Who are those people in your life? If you don't have them, pursue those relationships. Like, if you're not in a life group, go to connectionpointchurch.org. Life groups are always open to be signed up with. And I also want to say, too, that it takes time to develop 2 a.m. friends. So stay in those relationships. It doesn't happen in a moment, but as you stay in the game, you'll develop those kinds of relationships. And why is this important? Because we were made for community. And marriage, as we kind of wrap up that first point, it's about friendship and an intimate friendship between a husband and a wife. Because the other thing we pull out from this passage as Jesus quotes is that marriage occurs between a man and a woman to display the image of God. That's what marriage is about. One of the concerns I had with this message when I was working through it is that it could be perceived as offensive. And to be clear, I'm not here to offend anyone. But at the same time, I recognize the message of Jesus is a radical one. It always has been. 2,000 years, it was radical to the Jews and to the Romans, and it's radical to us today if we really abide by it. This is why Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, they'll find it. The message of Jesus, what does it do? It confronts our human nature. If I were to follow my own just nature apart from God, I I reflect on this sometimes. What would I probably do? I, I think about what would my life be like? Because I remember back to childhood days. I know what that kid was doing. And I think about what would that translate into now? Like I'd be punching people in Walmart. I'd be driving people off the road, for sure. I learned to drive in Chicago. I'm talented at driving people off the road. Like, there's a skill there. Like, that would be my nature. But because of Christ's work in me, I can walk through Walmart today. And literally, there's times where it's dropped in my heart, and I see someone who I know is hurting, and I think, you are meant to house the fullness of God. That's God's design for us, made in the image of God. You are a wonder. Like, we've got people that travel to see the wonders of the world, when they could look to their neighbor and see a wonder right there that God created. So it's like God changes me. He changed me from the inside out, so then I'm not who I could have been. And I'm so glad for that. Because when I decided to follow Jesus, he gave me his spirit to change me. So what Jesus does is now he invites us to follow him and be remade, to start living according to his design instead of just our design. I've gotten to the point in following Jesus where I'm so confident in the goodness of God. And it took me a little while to get there, if I'm honest. But I'm so confident in the goodness of God that when I'm challenged by Scripture, I can be confident the motive behind it is for my good and God's glory. 100% of the time. And so then it's okay for me to follow through with whatever he asks. I was thinking about, and as we look at Scripture, what are things we want in our life? Who here would like abiding peace? Who would like to have a heart that's filled with love? Would you like to have the kind of faith that sees everything, even your your failures and your losses in light of God's governance for good? Would you like to have the kind of hope that endures even in discouraging circumstances? If so, then you want to be challenged and changed by Scripture 
because that's how that comes apart in our lives. That's how we are blessed with those things, because abiding peace, love, faith, and hope, that's not our default human state. It's not. And I think everyone in this room would probably agree with that. That's not where we live apart from Christ. We don't have that. Those qualities are a result of entering into our new creation reality in Jesus. It really is. So as I get into the next couple of points, I want to encourage you in a couple of different ways. The first is, look at the content in these verses for yourself. If you are a believer, God has given you the Holy Spirit, you can understand Scripture. You can. I put a lot of work into messages like these. I've had a lot of education. You know, I call people with doctorates in theology who are smarter than me because I want their input too. So I know what I put into it, but honestly, it doesn't matter. I want you to know for yourself that what we're looking at in Scripture is true according to God's Word. So I would encourage you, examine these verses for yourself. And if you have questions, feel free to ask. I love questions. Everyone is welcome at the Maddox family table. Everyone. So feel free to come and ask questions. The second thing is, our commitment here at Connection Point, as it relates to our community, is that we hope the only offense you receive when you're with us is the one the gospel provides. Here's what I mean by that. In other words, no matter who you are, no matter where you've been, you are welcome at Connection Point Church. No matter where you are. No matter your past or present addictions. No matter your past shortcomings or your present failings, no matter your marital status or your sexual orientation, everyone is welcome at Connection Point. Everyone is welcome. And I hope that that is your experience, whether you join us in person or you're with us online. That's what my hope is. But at the same time, I want to encourage all of us, let's not be afraid to be challenged by God's word. Let's not be afraid. To be clear, although we mean to never be offensive, the gospel is. I want to be clear, it is. And we are not ashamed of the gospel. And here's why. Here's what Paul writes in Romans chapter 1. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, but here's why. Because it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. So we're not ashamed of the power that changes us. We're not ashamed of it. And why is the gospel offensive? Here's why. Because it upseats ourself and puts God at the center. It offends me. When God says, Zach, that wasn't very loving. You're right, God. I'm going to make that right. That's why the gospel is offensive, because it comes against those things in our life that would keep us from fulfilling God's desire for us. And let me say, God's best for our lives. It really does. You think about it. It unseats this throne. God says that we are broken in need of a Savior. But what do we do with our brokenness? I want to become the best version of myself and figure it out myself. It doesn't work. It never works. We cannot save ourselves from our pain and brokenness. Only God can do that. The gospel, the good news of Jesus, it is the power of God for salvation, it says. So to be clear, the work of God in our lives, it's an offensive work. But I also want to say, I'm sure glad that God is on the offense in my life. I'm so glad that he is. I'm so glad that he wars against those things in my life that are not good for me. That's what he does. We should all be thankful for God's work in our lives. So as I get further into this message today, I want you to look into these verses yourself. Ask questions. Know confidently that you are loved at Connection Point Church, no matter who you are. But let's also be okay for God's word to change us because God is a good father and he knows what's best for our lives. He really does. Now, as it pertains to Jesus and marriage, we find that marriage occurs between a man and a woman to display the image of God. I already shared in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. Let me back up to verse 26 because here's what it says. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. 
So God creates us in his image, male and female. And notice this as I kind of emphasized it. Let us make man in our image. So what, is, what are these words referring to? It's referring to the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God as us, the Trinity. That's what it's referring to. So to be made in the image of God, male and female, means we somehow reflect the mystery of the Trinity in marriage. That's what it means. God made male and female his image to reflect his character and his nature, to display how multiples of different can equal one. That's what he was doing. Uh, we read in Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. If you've read the Old Testament, I'm sure that's a familiar verse. And what's interesting, though, is the Hebrew word for God here is Elohim, which literally means gods in the plural. In fact, Elohim can have either a male or female designation. And we find in Scripture God is described in both male and female terms. We find this in both the Old and New Testaments. You, you look at Isaiah chapter 26. God says he will comfort those in Jerusalem like a mother comforts her child. In the New Testament, Jesus says he wanted to gather the people of Israel like a hen who gathers her brood under her wings. And the Hebrew word for Deuteronomy for one in this verse, so the Lord our God is one, it's the Hebrew word ichad, which is not like the numerical one. It has to do more with essence, that God is unified. So the Lord our gods, the Lord is one, a unified one. He's three in one. And in the same way that this word for one is used in Deuteronomy, we find it in Genesis chapter 2, when the same author who writes both of these verses in Deuteronomy and Genesis, here's what he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become ichad, one. The two genders together, here's what we see in Scripture, are supposed to image the mystery of the Trinity, where you have diversity and yet unity arising out of that diversity. That is what God's design is. That's what we see here. And it's only in a heterosexual marriage that this can occur. We know this. A homosexual union is unity in sameness, which is not God's design. That's what we see in these passages. Because there's something about the mystery of a male and a female coming together as one that displays the mystery of the Trinity to the world around us. We need both genders together to get a fuller picture of who God is. That's what we see in Genesis. But the question is, did Jesus define marriage this way? You might ask. And the answer is, he did. He did it in the passage that we just read from this morning. That's why we worked out of it. When Jesus quotes from Genesis, what he does is to reaffirm God's design for marriage, a covenant relationship between a man and a woman. Here's what he says in Matthew chapter 19. He, he quotes, Jesus answered, have you not read? And so he's going back to Genesis to say, here's what it is. He who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become ichad, one flesh. So they're no longer two but one. So Jesus reaffirms God's design for marriage by quoting directly from Genesis, where we see multiples of different male and female coming together to form one. So yes, Jesus defines marriage this way. But then I've also gotten the question, because I've had lots of conversations around this, and good conversations. Can I say the church should be the place where we ask questions? Yeah. So let's be a place where we can, all questions are okay questions to ask. And so I've had the question, well, did Jesus ever speak against a homosexual union? And the answer is yes. Yes, number one, in that he affirms that 
heterosexuality is God's plan, as we've already seen in Matthew chapter 19, when he quotes from Genesis chapters 1 and 2. But it's also yes when Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So what was the law that Jesus was referring to? It's centered around the Ten Commandments found in Exodus chapter 20, which is further unpacked in Leviticus chapter 17 through 26 in a section of Scripture called the Holiness Code. The section of Scripture is expanding or explaining what the Ten Commandments is talking about. Because in the Ten Commandments, we find you shall not commit adultery. And this command is a very concise way of saying the only proper expression sexually is in marriage between one man and one woman for life. That's what that command is referring to. And anything outside of that is not God's plan for sexuality. Now, in a couple of weeks, I want to go ahead. We're going to share a message on Jesus and sexuality to dive deeper into God's plan for sexuality, because there's a lot of questions there too. But in order to talk about Jesus and marriage, it's important we understand that Jesus reinforces God's plan for marriage as laid out in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. The writer of Exodus, where the Ten Commandments is found, he goes back to unpack what's meant by you shall not commit adultery in Leviticus chapter 18. He talks about things like incest, fornication, homosexuality, and any sexuality that's expressed outside of a marriage covenant between a man and a woman. That's what he gets into. It's in this section of scripture where we find, do not practice homosexuality, having sex with another man as with a woman. It's a detestable sin. So it's understood that Jesus is referencing this moral code found in the Ten Commandments when he says, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. So the word behind what we translated as sexual immorality here is a Greek word, pornea, and it's a catch-all term for any sexual activity outside of marriage, whether it's incest, bestiality, fornication, or homosexuality, all these things that are listed in Leviticus 18. So did Jesus address homosexuality? Yes. He addressed every form of sexual immorality outside of one man and one woman in a marriage relationship. He did. But some could be wondering, but what do I do with the feelings I have toward another person of the same sex? Because I'm, but what I want to do, I want you to know that God can meet you there too. Um, but because I want to limit the content of this to marriage, let me get back to that in two weeks when we talk about Jesus and sexuality. Because God truly can meet you there as well. So what I would encourage you all four of these messages in May, so Jesus and women, Jesus and marriage, Jesus and singleness we'll get into next week, and Jesus and, and sexuality, all of these tie together. And if you comprehensively understand God's design, you'll understand the conversation better. So my encouragement is, stay in the conversation. And in a couple of other conversations I've had, I've, I've had people infer that if Jesus only addresses marriage or sexuality on a few occasions, it must not be that big of a deal. But here's the thing. If Jesus sets up that sexuality is meant to be expressed between a man and a woman in a marriage relationship by quoting from Genesis, how many times does he need to address the deviations from that plan to help everyone understand the plan laid out in Genesis is God's plan? 
Jesus isn't interested in continually addressing the deviations from God's plan. He simply wants to continue to affirm what God's plan is, which, by the way, is what he does for every aspect of our life, not just in marriage and sexuality. You see, we hold to a biblical view on life, not just in marriage. Our entire life is meant to be under the lordship of King Jesus. And Jesus, over and over again, he shows us and teaches us how we're to live according to God's original design in every aspect of our life, everything. And this really goes back to what I shared last week, asking, are we going to live up to our new creation potential or are we going to revert back to our fallen state? Because that choice is for all of us. So it's important for us to understand our government doesn't define marriage. God does. Because God invented marriage. He made it for friendship and to display the mystery of the Trinity, the mystery of multiples of different coming together to form one. It's what he did. And so it's important as we consider marriage, we allow God's word to be our guide. It really is in all things. Truth is not relative. It's an absolute. Our culture would say that truth is what works. But I cannot determine truth for myself. It has to come outside of me if it's going to be real truth. And truth matters because truth is what sets us free. It's never about truth. It's about living free to live that fully alive life that Jesus has for us. So truth is about freedom. And I'll be honest, that's about the only reason I preach this. Because my heart is, let's all step into the fully alive life Jesus offers. But truth is required. As much as I might like to, I can't rewrite scriptures to make life easier. If I could, I would change where Jesus says that I must love my enemies and bless those who persecute me. That's not natural. But that's what Jesus' design is, and what he says, that will lead you into your best life. And so, Jesus, I trust you in that. Because I trust Jesus to lead me toward full freedom and best life. For sure, I want to be clear, the Christian faith is a demanding one. It really is. Jesus said it would be that to follow him would be the equivalent of carrying a cross, which Paul says is dying daily. But that it would be worth it, because Jesus is worth it. Life in the kingdom is worth it. And by living according to this standard, I can expect to experience the peace, love, faith, and hope that only he can provide in this life that we're living and for life forever with him. Only he can do that. So are we willing to allow Jesus to define what marriage is, or do we want to define it for ourselves? My hope is we allow God's word always to challenge us in every way. I've said before, when I I read God's word in the morning, it's reading me. It's informing hey, you know what, Zach, this is an area you might need to work on in your life. And I'm glad for that, because I know God's leading me in my best life, the fully alive life he has for us. So what we find in Scripture is marriage occurs between a man and a woman to display the image of God. And we also find that marriage, in Matthew chapter 19, it's meant to last a lifetime. It's meant to last a lifetime. After Jesus talks with the Pharisees about divorce, and, and Jesus implies we shouldn't be so quick to get a divorce, his disciples say to him, if such is the case... So listen to the disciples here. I love this. If such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. Like, really, Jesus? Why should we get married then? That's that's the disciples' response. So clearly the disciples were not used to hearing this kind of talk about marriage. Divorce is very common in the Jewish and Roman world in the first century in the time of Jesus. Josephus, a Roman Jewish historian, and himself a divorced man, he wrote in the Antiquities of the Jews that he believed a man was permitted to divorce his wife for any reason whatsoever. So that's the thinking at the time. So Jesus' view on the permanence of marriage, it represented a significant departure from the culture of that day. Kind of like what he did with his view on women. He would depart from culture and say, what was God's intent? Let's get back to that. According to Jesus, marriage is supposed to last forever. 
The exception he mentions is one of sexual immorality. Again, a catch-all phrase for any sexual activity outside of marriage. And we find later in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul adds to this. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is not an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband, or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So what we find is the other grounds for divorce in New Testament is what we might label as religiously motivated abandonment. Paul is addressing a particular issue that arose from the experiences of the early church. You know, what if my spouse and I were both unbelievers when we got married, but now one of us has come to faith in Jesus? What if the unbelieving spouse does not wish to be identified as a Christian? What if he or she does not wish for me to identify as a believer? What should I do now? This question could not have been asked of Jesus during his early life, earthly life because he w- it wasn't an issue until after the resurrection and ascension. So this is like Paul having to navigate by the Spirit. How do I do this? And so Paul, he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And this is why Paul says, I, not the Lord, that if an unbeliever is willing to stay in the marriage and to live with an active, obviously Christian person, then by all means, that person should stay in the marriage. Why? Because that individual, that spouse, might become a believer. Because in the end, our marriage is meant to be a witness to others. That's what marriage is ultimately about. But then Paul adds, but if an unbelieving spouse does not want to stay in the marriage, does not want to live with an active and obvious follower of Jesus, it's okay for the believer to let them go. In such cases, the believer is not bound. They're free to leave and remarry, Paul is saying. Now someone could ask, but what about a spouse who's verbally or physically abusive? And I think that's part of what Paul covers here. Because if someone's verbally or physically abusing another person, they're not in Christ. Well, they claim to be a Christian. doesn't matter. Jesus says, a believer is known by their fruit. We're not judging individuals, we're just saying what Jesus basically claims here. Now, I also know that there's many in our building today and many joining us online who have been through divorce. And maybe you're wondering this morning what God thinks about that part of your life. And I want you to know that God understands how painful that season of your life was because he's been through a divorce. Do you know that? You go back to the Old Testament, you read in Jeremiah how God sent northern Israel away with a certificate of divorce, is what it says, because they had committed adultery. They had turned their back on God and began to serve other false gods. So if you've been through divorce, God knows your pain. He really does. I've encountered some individuals who have walked through a divorce and they hang their head in shame, convinced that God doesn't love them because they were divorced. And this is absolutely false. I've actually discovered where this comes from. It's, It's somebody misquoting a verse in Malachi. And here's what this verse fully says. I want you to hear this verse this morning. God says, For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. And here's why. To divorce your wife is to overwhelm her with cruelty, says the Lord of heaven's army. So guard your heart. Do not be unfaithful to your wife. In this verse, God is addressing men in Judah who have been unfaithful to their wives. So let me ask you, does God hate divorced people? Come on. Does God hate divorced people? No, resoundingly no. God doesn't hate any people. He hates the bad things that happen in our life that cause us pain. He hates those evil things that keeps us from good relationship with him. That's what he hates. So God does not hate divorced people. He loves you. 
He understands the pain that you've been through, for that's you this morning. And I also know that some divorced people, they look back and they wonder if things could have turned out differently. There's no way of knowing that. The real question is, what will you do now and in your future? That's what you need to ask yourself. We can't change our past, but we can work on our present circumstances. Because I know there are many here who have moved past their divorce and they've remarried, and the key thing moving forward is, don't be the cause of future divorce either by sexual immorality, abuse, or abandonment. Don't, don't do that. What matters most to God is what happens from this point forward. We're called in marriage to be understanding, to be flexible, and ask in every situation, what does love require of me? That's what we're called to in marriage. Because Jesus did intend for marriage to last a lifetime. So when you make a marriage vow, whether that's in a courtroom, a backyard, or a sanctuary, we should take those vows seriously. Really should, because what is marriage about? Marriage is about commitment. And the last thing we find this morning is that marriage is about displaying God to the world. Marriage is about displaying God to the world. This really is the whole point of the whole message. I've already talked about how God designed marriage to reflect the mystery of the Trinity. But we also find in Genesis that men and women were made in the image and likeness of God. Men and women are the only authorized representatives and resemblances of God on planet Earth. So when people look at you, particularly when they look at you as a married couple of of male and female coming together, they're supposed to see something about the beauty and wholeness of the living God. That's what they're supposed to see. Your marriage is supposed to witness to God's essential nature and character and also his saving work in Jesus. Here's what Paul expounds upon. He says, as the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, the two united as one. So again, Paul's going back to that Genesis record. This is a great mystery, but it's an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. So again, I say, each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. So Paul, like Jesus, he reaffirms God's design for marriage, found in Genesis the uniqueness of a man and woman coming together as one, to not only reflect the Trinity, but also illustrate the unique relationship between Jesus and the church. What an interesting picture. The very nature of your covenant marriage, the intimacy, the mutuality, The love expressed between husband and wife was intended to say something visually and representatively about Christ and the church. If you're married, the overall purpose of your marriage is to display God to the world. That's the overall purpose. The ultimate answer to the question is, what is marriage for is this, that your marriage is about displaying God to the world. That's what your marriage is about. People should see the way that I love and serve Shelley and get a glimpse of the way that Jesus loves the church, how he laid down his life for her. And anyone who sees Shelley display respect for me should understand more deeply what it means for the church to respectfully follow King Jesus. That's what people should see in our marriage. Your marriage is a witness. Consider that this morning. Whether you like it or not, your marriage is saying something about God and the love of God in Christ for his people, and people are listening. Your marriage is saying something. What's it saying? There's more at stake in your marriage than just your marriage. The beauty of the good news of the kingdom is at stake in your marriage. So it matters who and how we are as married people. It really does. So what's your motivation to marriage? Your your own happiness and fulfillment or something more? Is the way you're interacting with your spouse an example for others to follow? Do you love and serve your spouse in such a way that others see Jesus? Uh, One of the things I often tell grooms during their wedding ceremony as it relates to their their wife, that the longer they are married, the more their wife should feel like they're married to Jesus. Like, whoo, that settles in some weight on your marriage, right? But scripturally speaking, that's what it should be. The longer we're married, the more we should see Jesus in one another. Your marriage is not meant to just be a blessing for you. It's meant to be a blessing to the world, a witness to the world of the goodness of God. 
So I'd say find an opportunity this week to serve your spouse. Bring them a cup of coffee. Do a load of laundry. Unless you don't know how to do laundry. Don't do that. (laughs) Change a toilet paper roll. Anybody can do that. And then do this. Talk up your spouse at work. Because you know what? That's countercultural, right? Talk up your spouse at work. Talk about how good your spouse is. The kind of loving partner that they are. Why? Because your marriage is about displaying God to the world. What an amazing thing that you can display God to the world with your marriage. You can display it. Now, what if you're not married? What if you're single? And that's what we're going to talk about next week in the message on Jesus and singleness. There's a lot there, too. In case you've forgotten, Jesus was single. So he's a pretty good example, right? (laughs) But I would say for all those married, what will you do this week to display God to the world? In what ways could you serve your spouse this week? By doing so, you'll be sharing Jesus with your neighbors and those you work with. You'll be leveraging your life and your marriage for the sake of those who don't have a relationship with Jesus. So think about it. You could this week change the eternal destiny of someone by the way that you love your spouse. That's powerful. That's powerful. Your marriage is an incredible witness to the world around you. So let it be that. I'm going to invite you to stand as we close in song this morning. In closing today, I asked Shelly if she would uh, come and just pray over marriages today. One of the things that we found in the midst of COVID is, uh, especially in our Western culture, we do a lot of things to distract ourselves. And so with quarantines and different things, those distractions were gone, our coping mechanisms were gone, and people actually had to look at the relationships in their life, and especially that between husband and wife. And a lot of people really were struggling in their marriages last year. And that's continued a bit into this year as well. And so if you find yourself struggling in marriage, we just want to pray a blessing over marriages today and uh, trust that God will do an incredible work in you and in your marriage. Because I really believe the enemy, let me, let me be clear here, the enemy does not want your marriage to be successful. And it should be really clear why. Because Genesis 1 and, and, and chapter 2, that your marriage displays the wonder of God to the world. Okay, does he want that witness? No, he wants to destroy it. So there are spiritual forces at work against your marriage. But you know what? I love that the promise of Jesus, I've overcome the world. Greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. And so we just want to pray a blessing over your marriage that God would bring your marriage together as one today. Let me say this too. Uh, one of the other things that, that I have found, Shelly, feel free to come, is it's like we're great to say, well, I'm going to go sign up for a fitness class and work on my physical health. Like people are like, good for you. But somebody says, you know what? I'm going to go to this class to work on my marriage. They're like, whoa. What's going on there, right? Like there are certain things in our culture that people are like, well, why are you working on that? Can I say that's a work of the enemy? You should work on your marriage. You should work on your parenting. You should work on your financial resources. Why? Because all of those are God-glorifying means to advance the kingdom of God. And so the enemy comes against those things. So if you need help with your marriage, reach out. Ask for help. We've got lots of healthy married people here that can help you with your marriage, not just Shelly and I. But let's just uh, pray over your marriages today. Zach told me ahead of time, you know, he wanted me to do this part of the service. And so one of the things that really stood out to me that I feel like is a point of prayer is regret. That, you know, maybe in the length of your marriage, you may have thought to yourself, I wonder if I I made the right decision here. I wonder if this was a mistake. And certainly, as Zach said, the enemy wants to come against you. And we tell this to our children all the time. You're going to have constant... um, 
opinions and, and viewpoints and you've got this whole culture that's going to speak something to you and you have the choice to listen to it, but the enemy comes to kill, steal, and destroy. And I think we want to kind of mute that a bit. Like it's just not really that intense in our lives, but it's absolutely true. It's absolutely true. And so then that's just you within your own mind, what you think, how you feel, but then you add marriage to that. And Jesus is constantly saying, you are one, you are one. And that really can bump up against some hard things because then you feel like, well, man, it's just hard enough to get my own mind in the right place and in the right direction. How are we going to do this together? And I feel like that's when you can clearly see that God brings two very different things together. And so it's a challenge, but it's not meant to be challenging, right? Because Jesus is with us. And so I want us to be thinking about regret or did I make a mistake? And what you need to understand is that when we say I am married, then God puts his stamp on that and says, now I'm going to use that. So whatever reason you decided to get married, that's your part. But God has a part in our marriage. He stamps it and says, now watch and see how I'm going to use this. And then it's our forever, right? Our forever journey to find that out as a couple. And so I want us to walk out of this room today realizing if you're married, it's special. It's really special. And I think the world desperately, desperately, desperately needs to see that we believe marriage is special. It's not a burden. It's not a ball and chain. It's not a prison. Now that doesn't mean every marriage is having this highlight special time. You could be going through some real challenges and that's why we pray. That's why we lean on each other. That's why we're in community. That's why we reach out and ask for help. But as we pray, if you're married, grab a hold of your spouse, right? Forget who fought over whatever at the coffee pot this morning, right? That's like so insignificant to what God wants to stamp on you. I want you to feel that stamp on your marriage. Youth, if you're in this room, you have parents. You need to be praying for your parents' marriage, right? Young adults, pray for your parents' marriage. Singles, pray for your future marriage if that's what God has for you. We all have a, a part to pray in this moment right now for our marriages that go on around us. So let's pray together. Right now, Lord, we are trying our best to see with your eyes what you see in marriage. It's our job to align ourselves with you and your creation. And so right now, God, we just lift up marriage what you designed, what you brought together, what you said is good. I pray right now for marriages to realign with you, God, that couples would come together, that couples would say, we are in this together, that this is not a 50-50 relationship. This is all of a man and 
all of a woman coming together for your best God, for your kingdom. I give all of myself to my marriage for the sake of Christ. I want Zach to give all of himself to our marriage for the sake of Christ. I'm not reserving something else for myself on the side. It just doesn't work. God, bring us all in for the sake of what you want to stamp on our marriage. God, give us a hunger and a thirst for what you want to do through marriages, God. God, I pray right now for the body of Connection Point Church. Help us to be positive about marriages. Help us to have good things to think and say. God, help our youth to be praying for their parents. No matter what that marriage is like, may they be praying that their parents would feel that stamp. May they encourage their parents in their marriage, God. We pray for young couples, God, that may not be married yet. Give them the right idea of what they're walking into, God. No falsehood, no fairy tale, the real deal that you stamp on us something that is valuable for your kingdom and something that brings glory to God. We thank you for that, God. Help us to walk out of this place today in alignment with your word and scripture. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.